I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi there! Welcome to History in Retrograde. This is the podcast where we use the ancient art of astrology to help us better understand the past. I'm your co-host, Chandler O'Quinn, and joining me live via satellite is my mom! Hi, Mom! Hello, Chandler! How are you? I'm doing very well. Are you ready to begin another grand experiment? I am. I am always ready to go on another adventure with you. All right, let's give it a whirl. All right. And I just want to say, before we get started, happy spring, everyone. It's so exciting that it's spring. I know in some places it's probably still snowy, but I have to tell you, just visualize for one second, a beautiful ocean with beautiful trees and palm trees in front of it, because that's what I'm looking at out my window right now. And it is amazing. Please come join me and enjoy the view. Uh, yes, uh, everyone, uh, in your imaginations, uh, picture a lovely coastline with dolphins and, uh, people paragliding, uh, uh, all over the bay. It is a lovely view that mom has. Uh, and then the rest of us can have it in our imagination. <laughs> you uh, can also come visit. Uh, oh yes, uh, to everyone uh, around uh, the the world. If you have not seen the beauty of the coastal bend of Texas, then I encourage you all to do so. Uh, it is uh, certainly one of the uh, jewels of this great planet of ours. Uh, so, uh, thank you, uh, to all the people who are returning. Uh, we, uh, love to hear from you guys and, uh, love, uh, all the support that you've given us. And for those of you, if this is your first episode of History in Retrograde, welcome. Uh, the, uh, way that we do things here is that, uh, in a moment, I will give the data necessary to create an astrological birth chart, uh, to my mother. Uh, now, this will be uh, the data of a random historical figure. Now, uh, I know who it is because I've selected this person. And you know it, uh, dear listener, because it is in the title of today's episode. But Mom has no idea who this person could be. So, in a moment, I will give her uh, the Mystery History guest's uh, birth date, time, and location. 
She will then input that into the bat computer, and out will come the astrological birth chart, where all the planets, moons, and stars were at the moment that person was born. She will then do her best to give a blind reading of this chart, telling us what she can about this person's personality traits, characteristics, fortunes uh, of our random uh, historical figure. Uh, I will then reveal to her who our mystery history guest is, give a little background about the person, and then together we will conclude the episode by figuring out how accurate the chart was and predicting what that person would do. Uh, So without any further ado... Let us begin. All right. Uh, This is a female. All right. Born on the 17th of August. Uh Uh-huh. 1892. Ooh. All right. Do we have a time? We do. (gasps) I'm so excited. 10.30 p.m. This is very exciting. All right, and location? Uh, the United States. Mm-hmm. Brooklyn, New York. Mm. So again, this is a female born August 17th, 1892 at 10.30 p.m. in Brooklyn, New York. <gasps> oh, uh, this chart just made every hair on my body stand up. Uh, uh, oh my gosh. Okay. This is amazing. Well, this is a splash chart for real. This person would have been a, a force to be reckoned with. Uh, first of all, let's just start with the planets, okay? This person has sun at 25 degrees Leo, moon at 2 degrees Cancer, Mercury at 9 degrees Virgo, Venus at 14 degrees Cancer, Mars at 8 degrees Aquarius, Jupiter at 24 degrees Aries, Saturn at 28 degrees Virgo, Uranus at 2 degrees Scorpio, Neptune at 11 degrees Gemini, Pluto at 9 degrees Gemini, North Node at 11 degrees Taurus, and Chiron at 23 degrees Leo. So, whoa. okay. Um, Where do I want to start here? Let's go to this North Node. All right, so here this person has North Node in Taurus in the 12th house. Very interesting the way these charts are laid out. Chandler, look at that. Uh-huh. That is very interesting. Okay, so clearly... This person, uh, since they have such a a wide orb in their 12th and 6th houses, I mean, it's really very wide because in uh, the 12th house, we have have, uh, Aries and Taurus, both in the 12th house. So in that 12th house, we have North Node and Taurus, but we also have Jupiter and Aries. So here we have this fire of Jupiter pushing this North Node, this direction. And North Node and Taurus in the 12th house would be karma with Venusian things. Karma, you, you, you have to, uh, the direction has to do with 
um, career and uh, um, material things, but in a very interesting karmic way, almost like this person came in to this life saying, you know what I want to do this time? I just want to be a really huge uh, career person. And the universe went, okay, we're going to go ahead and put your north node in the 12th house in Taurus. So have at it. And so that's kind of what that feels like. Then this person has Pluto conjunct Neptune in the first house. Now, Pluto in the first house, and it's in Gemini. Okay. Uh, exactly conjunct, uh, not by exact degree, but uh, Pluto is nine degrees Gemini and Neptune is 11 degrees Gemini. So Gemini on the first house, uh, oof. I mean, even though this person, see how it changes right here to Gemini and we still have Taurus in the first house and this person has Taurus as their ascendant, right? 25 degrees Taurus on their first house cusp. They have Pluto and Neptune in Gemini in this first house. So with what we know about Gemini, we know that this person must have been a communicator, a powerful communicator, a creative communicator, and possibly really funny. Like this person possibly could have been uh, amusing and enjoyed amusing people and telling stories and quips and things like that. Now, this person has moon in Cancer in the second house. Okay. So moon in Cancer would have also made this person really nurturing and loved to mother people uh, and, and liked nurturing things. Like um, they would have liked really comfortable things around them uh, for uh, material things. Then this person has Venus in the third house. Venus in Cancer in the third house. So Venus in the third house would also make this person uh, very, um, they would have loved writing. They would have loved communicating because third house is ruled by Gemini. So they would have loved, because it's Venus, right? And also in Cancer, very nurturing, um, communicating in a nurturing way way uh with love um also this is early childhood uh early school um elementary school it represents siblings uh so maybe would have really loved a sibling or siblings uh then we have fourth house fourth house cusp in leo uh, with Chiron at 23 degrees and Sun at 25 degrees. So they are conjunct by degree, not exactly by degree, but within two degrees of each other in Leo in the fourth house. So this person would have been very, uh, very uh, much an entertainer or like to entertain in their home or in their community 
somehow they're entertaining or they're leading in their hometown. But I don't know why, but I just, I don't know. This person's chart seems like it would be very show busy. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, I mean, whatever they're doing, they're doing it in a big way in their home because their son and Chiron are both there. Now, Chiron conjunct son could have some issues with the father in early life. Something about maybe the father and home because they have Chiron in the fourth house. So maybe they moved around a lot or maybe they didn't have a good childhood home or something about that that then makes them, if they're on the right track, because Chiron is the wounded healer, makes them want to heal people by using their home, by using their community, by using their, um, you know, their environment. Then fifth house is uh fifth house we have mercury at nine degrees virgo all right and we have saturn at 28 degrees Virgo in the fifth house so com again communication big communication in virgo but with saturn there so also lessons and um, organization and preciseness regarding fifth house issues, fifth house show business, fifth house entertainment, fifth house leadership, fifth house romance, all of these things that are ruled by the sun because Leo rules the fifth house. So uh, there are lessons involved there with this communication, but it's 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 Mercury in Virgo and Saturn in Virgo, and as we know, Virgos are the most precise. They're all about precision. They can be about mm, technical issues, uh, work in the fifth house. Then their sixth house cusp is Libra, and they have Uranus in the sixth house. So. Uranus, uh, but their Uranus is in Scorpio because you see here how this uh, sixth house and this 12th house have such a wide arc. So we have Libra and Scorpio big time in both uh, in the sixth house and we have Aries and Taurus big time in the 12th house. So in this situation, this person um, with Uranus in Scorpio in the sixth house. That's going to put, because Uranus is ruled by Aquarius, which is very futuristic, technological, um, space age, humanitarian. Uranus, though, in Scorpio is going to have some, there's going to be some appeal with Scorpio things. Scorpio is ruled by Pluto, so it could be, uh, there could be some interest in taboo things or supernatural things or psychic abilities or sexual preferences and all this kind of thing somehow having to do with their work because it's sixth house so it's work um they don't have anything in their seventh house but their seventh house cast was still uh scorpio uh then they have sag here their uh eighth house is still sag ninth house is capricorn 10th house is Aquarius and their Mars is in the 10th house and their Midhaven 
It is literally conjunct. See, they have Midhaven at three degrees Aquarius and they have Mars at eight degrees Aquarius. This is again about the career and having, oh man, again, I, this person could have been very, very funny or different or quirky. Um, they have Mars and Aquarius, which makes them unique. Uh, it makes them, uh, it could make them technological. It, it could definitely make them before their time. Um, it could make them very humanitarian. I mean, on a very normal scale, not artistic, they could, their direction could be that they want to help humanity, you know, because it's Mars, your passion and, uh, how, you know, Mars rules like your passion, how you express your anger, how you express yourself sexually, uh, how you express any passion, anything you're passionate about. They have it in Aquarius, which is, you know, being unique, being different, being, uh, before their time. And then they have 11th house is Pisces. They don't have anything in the 11th house, but the 11th house ruled by Pisces would give you an idea of how they relate to the public, to groups of people, and they would relate to groups of people and the public in a very creative way, almost capable of creating illusion because Pisces is ruled by Neptune. Neptune rules illusion. Uh, it, on the dark side, it could be very manipulative. Uh, you never know what you're doing in. And really dark, it could be alcoholism, drug abuse, and uh, mental illness. So um, is any of this making any sense? Um, yeah. I mean, there are uh, bits and pieces here that are... Um making sense uh, i think that um there's maybe some things that people uh, may not uh, associate with this person um but uh yeah i mean there's it, it there, there's some there's some stuff here okay so um i've gone through all of the um planets in their houses do you have any questions yes um how would men see her well, this person does have Taurus rising. So whenever you have Taurus or Libra rising, that is ruled by Venus, which can be very beautiful. All right. But a Taurus rising person is going to be pretty stubborn. Like they might be very cordial. They might be very uh, beautiful. They could also be very Viking-like, you know, very um, strong. Okay, but they do have Neptune con conjunct Pluto in, in Gemini in the first house, which could also make them very, very, very gregarious and uh, talkative and flirty, very flirty. So any of those things would apply here. Well, I think uh, there'd be a lot of people out there uh, surprised that this person was uh, flirty, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, how uh, would she prefer the company of men or women? Well, 
It depends. Because if she's heterosexual, uh, then she would prefer the company of very unique men. Now, if she is homosexual, then because her Mars is an Aries, that would not be surprising because it would be a more uh, unique or interesting way of expressing yourself. But um, I think that you did ask me what kind of men she would like, right? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I, it's, uh, uh, this was a person who, uh, preferred the company, preferred being around, uh, one gender over the other. So I was just trying to see if there's anything in this chart that would indicate, uh, that. Well, I mean, because she has Mars, which is our planet, women, a woman, a, a heterosexual woman, you look at their Mars to see what kind of men they like. And so if she were to like men, she would like very unique men. But if it is a homosexual woman, then you could also look at the Mars and go, okay, well, that makes sense because it's, it's, it's Uranus, right? So it's, it's any, 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 it's a, it's, it's open, it's open-minded, you know? So there's that, there's that. And then her moon is in Cancer. So having moon and cancer would make you very connected to your feminine side and very connected to women. She also has Venus in cancer, which would also make her very connected to women. So as far as women are concerned, this could make her very connected to women uh, with her moon and her Venus conjuncting cancer, whether it be mothers, sisters, friends, or lovers. But in this situation where her Mars is in Aquarius, she would want a very unique man. A man that was unusual, not your mm. average Joe. Okay. And um, I also want to say about this uh, first house, how people would perceive her. She does have Pluto conjunct Neptune in Gemini in the first house, and Pluto is power. So she could be considered very powerful. But also okay. elusive, because it's Neptune, so it is illusion. So she could also... See, when you have Neptune in the first house, it, it can make you very psychic, but it can make you a really amazing actor because you have the power to literally pull the veil down and become whatever character you want. And with Pluto there, it would be a very powerful ability to do that. So mm. maybe. Okay. Um, uh, can you tell me anything about uh, uh, the relationships uh, with the mother and the father? Well, I would say that the father, see, because we have Chiron literally conjunct the sun, right? In Leo. So I would say, because you look to the sun for the father. And here we have this in the fourth house, the home. So there would have been some issue, I would think, with either the home or the father or all of the above. The father, the home, everything. And in Leo, which is, uh, you know... It can be Leo's, the dark side of Leo can have a really, really, really bad temper and can, they can be cruel, just like the dark side of air. I mean, there's cruelty all the way around, right? But in this situation, the dark side would be that. As far as the mother, I see that this moon in the second house uh, I would assume that having moon and cancer would give you a fairly loving mother. It should. 
what profession do you see this uh, woman going into? Well, whatever career this woman has, she's very passionate about her career. Okay. Um, she does have these nurturing aspects to herself, you know, with moon and cancer and Venus and cancer in the, in the second and third houses, but this Jupiter conjunct, well, it's not conjunct, but North node and Taurus in Jupiter and Aries in the 12th house. Okay. With, um, Uranus in Scorpio in the sixth house and Mars in Aries in the 10th house, I would think her career was very important to her. Um, I would like to think that this person was a performer, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. I mean, this woman could be, she's got Mars in Aquarius in the 10th house. She could be out there, you know, leading the troops for women's right to vote. Or, I mean, she could be doing anything, but she's definitely not a wallflower. Hmm. Uh, how is she with finances? Well, she has moon in the second house in cancer. So you look to the second house for finances. And when you have moon there, uh, she could have, um, I mean, this could, she could have, she could love, she could love, uh, finances. She could love money, but I, I just feel like this Venus and, and, uh, moon in cancer in the second and third houses um, would it should make her more nurturing with her finances like like she wants to nurture with them hmm. or she wants to nurture women because it's moon in the second house but there should be nurturing because it's cancer and cancers do on on you know when they're doing the right thing when they're being their their good light self they they really are very nurturing um what kind of clothes would she wear well uh that's hard to say because she is pluto and neptune in gemini in the first house so she could dress really out there like she could do things that would be very unusual. And with Neptune in the first house, it can also make her n not ever really be the same. Like she can draw that veil down over her and, and wear this outfit. Like today she's dressed like Marie Antoinette. Tomorrow she's going to mm -hmm. dress like, you know, uh, whatever, you know, a, 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 a nun. You know, it could be anything because it's Neptune in the first house. It's how she, it's how she would communicate her mood for the day or how people see her. People should have seen her as difficult to pin down. I mean, she does have Taurus on the first house and that's going to give her all that Taurian strength, right? So she's very strong. But having Pluto and Neptune in the first house is also going to make her, in Gemini, is going to make her fairly unique. It should. And she does not care. She shouldn't care. Hmm. Um, how would she decorate a home? I think her home would be decorated very elaborately. She's got a uh, sun in conjunct Chiron in the fourth house. 
So I would think that it would be, you know, very Leo-ish, very uh, lavish, um, Mm -hmm. uh, interesting, theatrical, you know, probably a lot of gold, gold Mm -hmm. colors. And definitely entertaining, but it could be, you know, I mean, the <laughs> the downside of that Leo on the fourth house is it, it would be so much it would be tacky, right? Uh-huh, but the upside uh-huh. would be that, um, you know, she would have excellent taste and, and, and having sun in the fourth house in Leo, her home would be very, very, very important to her or her environment or her you know, her community, wherever she feels, wherever that boundary is outstretched from her that she sees as home, you know, that's very important to her. Hmm. Okay. And uh, what is her relationship to the supernatural? Well, again, we have Neptune in the first house in Gemini. So we go there first. Okay. So she could have and conjunct Pluto, right? Which is very occult and supernatural in the first house. She could have a very, very, very deep relationship with the supernatural, right? Uh, she, This person could go as far as being a psychic or being so into it that they thought people thought they were crazy okay they also have uranus in scorpio in the sixth house which can put you into that occult area and and very uh and it's in the sixth house which would be work right so it's almost like this person could work as a psychic or as a medium or as anything that has to do with and it's very unusual because having uh uranus in the sixth house is going to give you either a very odd way of working or a a a unique way of working or with it being in scorpio a supernatural and occult way of working working in taboo things working in uh the you know it could even be like the dark side of the occult this person would not have a problem with any of the above because they have Mars and Aquarius, North Node in the 12th house, which is, you know, karma and uh, coming into this life and Jupiter. And I mean, this person would not have a problem with supernatural things, I would not think. Okay. Um, how would this uh, woman view herself? Does she, what is her uh, self-confidence like? Well, I have to say that she can vacillate on that, all right? Because when you have Pluto in the first house, you do, you do change and you have death and rebirth. And the way that people see you isn't necessarily the way they saw you the last time they saw you. Like some people are the same their whole life. The people who have Pluto in the first house will definitely be seen differently, like through phases. They go through phases in their life. They're not that person that this is their style. This is what they look like. This is their hair color. You know what I mean? It, it 
having Pluto and Neptune in the first house could make this person doubt themselves on occasion, but also having Pluto in the first house could make this person be very, very, very confident and very powerful. So, you know, it's, it's the two sides of a, of a coin, you know. But having Taurus on the first house cusp, I would lean towards more confident. Mm -hmm. uh, how does this woman relate to sexuality? Uh, well, I would say if you have Mars and Aquarius, you're kind of open-minded in that area. You are uh, open, open about it. Um, you know, so her Venus is in Cancer, which would make her or should make her more feminine, possibly more demure. If she had like Mars in Virgo or Venus in Capricorn or even Venus in Virgo, I would think that she would be less, um, you know, that more reserved, right? With more reservation. But Venus in, in, in Cancer should be very feminine, very female, you know? But that Mars in Aquarius... Psh, it's anybody's guess. You have Mars and Aquarius. You're wide open. You could be whatever. Also having Jupiter in Aries in the 12th house uh, and North Node in Taurus in the 12th house, there's something about Martian things. Okay. So this person has some kind of, some kind of benevolence and karma with the aspect of Mars, whether this person benefits from fighting or win, always wins fights or accomplishes what they're after uh, a little easier than other people might. There's something about that Jupiter and Aries in the 12th mm. house with North Node in the 12th house as well. Uh, if they're there... following their direction. Because North Node is if you choose to follow your direction. Because otherwise you're dealing with South Node, which would be just being a worker. Uh-huh. Uh, is there uh, anything else about this chart that you haven't talked about already? I find this chart to be very unique and unusual. And I'm not sure that I would necessarily want to be super good friends with this person, but I think I would really be interested to know this person hmm. and be, uh, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe not super best friends because they might be a little too, too unique for me. They might be, uh, they might be too much. I don't know. And that's a lot for me because I'm pretty, I'm pretty out there myself, but I am interested to know who this is because this person could be uh, way, way out there as a person. Or, on the other hand, they could be quite the uh, a leader for humanitarian things. And so, I mean, I think if they were, you know, in a situation where 
they were uh, just weird, you know, just really super weird. I might be entertained, but I think I would want to hang out with them more if they were really fighting for humanitarian causes and they were just unique. Hmm. Hmm. Um, are we ready for our uh, summary? Yes. Okay. Uh, the first thing that you said was that there is uh, karma with uh, Venusian things. A uh, career is very important. Uh, career is the direction in life. A uh, powerful, creative, funny communicator. Enjoyed telling stories, quips. Love to mother people. Uh, comfortable with uh, the material possessions that she had would be uh, comfortable. Uh, loved writing and communicating. Communicating about love. Entertainer. Entertain in a big way at home. Uh, there could be issues with the father at home. Organization uh, with show business and romance. There's an interest in taboo things. Uh, supernatural. Sexuality. Uh, and these interests in taboo things is connected to work. Uh, she is funny, different, quirky, unique, ahead of her time. Could be a humanitarian. Uh, there's a unique expression of passion or sexuality. Uh, relate to public through illusion. Uh, there is the possibility for addiction or alcoholism. Uh, she would be seen as beautiful, but possibly Viking-like, stubborn. Uh, she would be gregarious, flirty talkative uh prefer the company of a unique man a very powerful and possibly elusive psychic a very good actor um the father may have had a bad temper uh, the mother was very loving very passionate about the career could be a performer not a wallflower uh, she might love finances, uh, would be good with money. Uh, she would be using the money to nurture people. Uh, she would dress out there, uh, would be unusual. Uh, the clothes are used to communicate. She'd be difficult to pin down. She is strong. She is unique. She does not care about what others think of her. A uh, very uh, elegant home, lavish, dramatic, lots of gold. Some might say it might get too much, might be tacky. Um, there uh, is a, a very uh, extravagant taste. There's a deep relationship with the supernatural. She could be psychic. She might be into it a little bit too much. People might think that she's crazy. Uh, there is a relationship possibly to the occult. In any case, she has no problems with the supernatural. Uh, she would be seen to go through phases in life. Uh, you, the way you see her one day might not be the way you see her several years later. She could be very, very, very confident, uh, but might struggle with uh, times of doubt every once in a while. Uh, she would be sexually open-minded. Uh, could be uh, whatever. There is a benevolence, a, a karma, with Mars-like things. Maybe she often wins fights. She could be too unique. Uh, she could be too much. 
she could be way, way out there. Uh, did I leave anything out? No, I just want to clarify that. Um, I'm it, When I'm talking about the first house and I say, you know, that this person could be very, very confident. Um, and then on the other hand, have moments of doubt. I mean, we can all be like that. So I sometimes I just think that when I move back and forth between the two sides of each sign and the planets that they're in, it just sounds like I'm kind of being wishy-washy. But uh, a, a lot of times people who appear very confident can also be and believe they're very confident. And then also, you know, have a moment where they, they're normally very confident, but then if they have a transit or something to their first house and it kicks their butt, then there is a moment uh, where they question things and they have to, you know, get back on the bicycle and ride it again. So, you know, I just don't want it to seem like I'm being too wishy-washy, but just that. Okay. Would you like to know whose chart you've been reading? I would, yes. Uh, this is the astrological birth chart of Mamie Eisenhower. Wow. Oh, wow. Oh, oh, wait just a second. Um, you know, uh, I do keep a pretty good eye on the calendar and uh, when our episodes will be published. And this episode is published on April 1st. And I would like to say that I have played a little April Fool's joke on all of our listeners. What? This is actually the astrological birth chart of May West. <gasps> oh my gosh! Oh, I love her! I love her so much! <laughs> oh, this makes perfect sense! Oh my. Oh my goodness, yes. Oh, this makes a lot of sense. Now it's like, okay, maybe Eisenhower. Oh, okay. No. Uh, yeah. May West, Mars in the 10th house. Oh my God. She literally blazed the trail for making sexuality a career. I mean, oh my gosh, yes. This is amazing. Tell me more. Uh-huh. So for those of you who do not know, uh, Mae West uh, was a uh, one of the biggest stars in the world in the 1930s uh, and really broke down the barriers on um, uh, showing that, that women could enjoy their sexuality and through her performances in film uh she uh really the, the you can trace a line from may west to uh um marilyn monroe raquel welch madonna rihanna all the people who are around today owe something to may west in breaking down these barriers uh, so, uh, Mae West was born Mary Jane West, uh, in August of 1893 in Brooklyn. Uh, she was the daughter of uh, Matilda and John Battling Jack West. Um, her father, uh, John, uh, he ran stables in a sort of unpleasant part of town. 
Um, but back in the 1890s, uh, you still needed horses to get you around New York. Not everyone had an automobile, um, even going into the middle of the early 1900s. So uh, he was uh, running this company of uh, horses and horse-drawn carriages. Uh, he was named Battling Jack because he used to be a fighter. He was a, 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 a prize fighter, a boxer. Uh, and he uh, often liked to uh, uh, visit the gym where he trained, and he would work out there every once in a while. And he would take uh, young Mary Jane uh, to the gym. And uh, this is where she credits her uh, fascination with muscle men. Uh, she, as a very young child, she uh, liked looking at the physiques of these young men uh, working out in the gym. Uh, but her mother, uh, Matilda, didn't really like that she was going to the gym and uh, instead wanted to put her on the stage. And so uh, at the age of five, uh, she started doing uh, uh, shows for the local church and pretty quickly uh, her mother put her onto vaudeville stages. Uh, her uh, original title was as Baby May. And as she says, she did not want it to be spelled M-A-Y, mm -hmm. because Y ends by going down. Mm -hmm. And so she did M-A-E, mm -hmm. because the E would be going up, and she was always going to be going up. <laughs> uh, so uh, she started working in these vaudeville houses at the age of five. By the age of seven, uh, she was doing performances. Uh, she was doing these contests. Um, she would have, uh, uh, they would give her the um, lyrics uh, to the song that she was going to sing that night uh, an hour or two before she was going to go on stage. And at the age of seven, she was already going through the lyrics and completely trashing them and writing her own lyrics uh, to these songs and adding additional lyrics and everyone loved what she had done. Uh, so all, already at the age of seven, she's showing this uh, uh, th her, her keen eye for show business and uh, wanting to write things herself. Uh, so she continued uh, going on through uh, her early uh, adolescent years, uh, playing in these vaudeville houses. Um, she would play in these uh, places all over New York and got influences from all these different um, places. So uh, in the vaudeville houses, there would be um, these acts uh, of female impersonators. Uh, so men who would dress up as women and uh, do a show much like uh, uh, what we might think of a drag queen show uh, today. And she saw the laughs that these men were getting, uh, portraying these women, and that had a profound impact on how she was going to develop a character. Um, she uh, would also see how other female dancers were dancing and uh, how they were performing, and uh, she would uh, take little bits of how they move their bodies and uh, add that into her mental repertoire. Uh, she would also go into the jazz clubs and see how the African Americans there in Harlem uh, were dancing. And this is actually one of the uh, ways that she first became famous. Um, she was working uh, in, in 1918, and she was uh, first became known in New York as the Shimmy Girl. Um, because she uh, learned the shimmy dance that the African Americans were doing. And this was a dance in which you stood and then shook your whole body around. 
And anyone who's seen Mae West knows that she had a lot to shake. <laughs> um, it was a pandemonium, and uh, the producers wanted to label her as the shimmy girl and take her across the country. And she said, I don't want to be known for a dance. Dances don't last. Uh, so she could have uh, ha- hit a spotlight right then, but knew that there was a larger career at hand. Um, she kept doing uh, this work uh, on uh, the vaudeville stage. She would go to Broadway a couple of times. And all during this time, she is uh, creating this character of Mae West, and she is uh, writing her own works. Uh, so all of uh, these plays... Uh, she is writing herself, uh, writing all of the lines and uh, essentially producing these things herself. In 1926, uh, she made a show and gave it the title of simply a three-letter word, Sex. Uh, she titled the play Sex, and in 1926 in New York, that was a, a pretty risque thing to do. Yes. So risque that uh, she was arrested. Oh, no! Um, and she uh, was sentenced to 10 days in jail. Uh, in her memoirs, she wrote that uh, she got to keep her own underwear. So she kept wearing her silk underwear while the other lady prisoners had to wear burlap. Oh, my. And that she had dinner with the warden every night. Ooh, I bet she did. Uh, and she uh, got off after eight days uh, for good behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, she continued writing and producing and directing all of these plays on Broadway. And eventually um, Hollywood came calling. Uh, in uh, the late 1920s and 29 and 30, um, the talkies uh, had come out. And uh, now all of these uh, silent stars, a lot of them could not make the transition into talking pictures. So Hollywood came to Broadway to see people who actually knew how to talk in front of an audience um, to get them to come to Hollywood. In 1932, she signed a contract with Paramount Studios, which was uh, one of the fledgling studios in Hollywood at the time. It was uh, going bank- nearly going bankrupt all the time. And uh, she was given a fourth billing in uh, a movie called Night After Night. She was given the script. Uh, she was fourth billing. And she decided that she was going to completely rewrite the script. <laughs> um, and uh, one of her co-stars, in fact, the man who uh, wanted her to come to Hollywood for this movie, his name was George Raft, uh, said uh, that she stole everything but the cameras. <laughs> Uh, there were uh, some actresses who were in the middle of a scene with her and after the scene was finished were so upset because she had completely stolen the scene. <laughs> um, this was the last time Mae West ever got fourth billing. Uh, she would be top billed for all of the rest of uh, her pictures. Uh, this is the scene, uh, th- this is the movie where, uh, and she actually titled her autobiography after this scene, uh, where she comes in wearing diamonds all over uh, her neck and ears and wrists, and she checks her coat, and the coat girl goes, uh, uh, goodness, look at those diamonds, and Mae West goes, goodness had nothing to do with it, dearie. <laughs> now, uh, by, uh... 1933, uh, Mae West was 40 years old. 
uh, she had not made she, her first motion picture. Uh, uh, she became a motion picture star at the age of forty, yes. uh, which is uh, phenomenal. Um, most of the time in Hollywood, even to this very day, uh, if you are a forty-year-old woman, you are no longer allowed to make motion pictures. Right. Um, but Mae West started her film career at the age of forty. Um, she brought uh, one of the uh, biggest successes that she had um, on Broadway to uh, the motion pictures. This was a play that was called Diamond Lil, and it was set in uh, the 1890s. And she was sort of able to get away with um, showing more risque aspects of sexuality by putting these things in, in the Old West or in the 1890s. I'm not talking about today. I'm talking about things that happened 30, 40 years ago. Um Diamond Lil is where she came up with the tagline um, that will it has followed her forever. It has been in cartoons. It is even in the Country Bears Jamboree at Walt <laughs> Disney World, where Mae West uh, says, uh, come up and see me sometime. <laughs> uh, so she brought that to uh, the uh, motion picture uh, screen. Uh, as they retitled the play to She Done Him Wrong. Um, and she needed a leading man for this. And they are at uh, the Paramount Studios, and she's getting in the car with the head of the uh, studio, uh, Mr. Zucker. And uh, they're driving in the car, and they see uh, this man uh, uh, walking uh, across the street on the studio lot. And she says, stop the car. And uh, they stop the car, and she says, who is that? <laughs> and uh, Zucker says, oh, he's some two-bit player. He's some cockney guy. Um, we, we, we're about to fire him. Mm-hmm. And uh, she goes, uh, well, can he talk? <laughs> and uh, she goes, well, if he can talk, I want him in the picture. <laughs> and that man was Cary Grant. Yes. Uh, so she discovered Cary Grant. She put Cary Grant in the pictures and made him a star. Yep. Uh, so if you like any Cary Grant movie, you owe something to Mae West. Um, this uh, movie, uh, She Done Him Wrong, was actually nominated for Best Picture. And this was a movie completely written, produced. Uh, she, I don't think she directed the movie, but she did direct it when it was on the stage. So this was all her. Um, and it made over two million dollars uh, back in back then money, which is like over three hundred million today. Um, this movie single-handedly saved Paramount Studios, mm. uh, so it was going bankrupt, and this movie is what put Paramount uh, back on top again. Um, it was time to renegotiate the contract. And uh, they asked her, well, uh, what kind of salary do you want to make? And she goes, uh, well, how much is Mr. Zucker being paid? And they mm-hmm. said, well, he's being paid $200,000. She goes, well, I want to be paid 201000 <laughs> Uh She became the, mo- the, the highest grossing or the highest paid woman in America. Mm-hmm. And she became the second highest paid person in America. Uh, during her time at Paramount Studios. Hmm. Uh, she was uh, set up in uh, the Ravenswood Apartments. That's where she would live uh, in Los Angeles. And she lived there she was starting in the early 30s and through until uh, the rest of her life. Uh, she had the top uh, penthouse there and had it uh, completely decorated. It was all white. 
uh, and all uh, Louis uh, the Sixteenth furniture, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, gold and yes. baby grand pianos. Yes. She had, um, she had statues of nude statues of herself. Oh. Um, and uh, at one point in the 1960s, much later on, they did a television interview with her in uh, in these apartments. And they looked in the bedroom, and there was a mirror over the bed. And they asked her, why is there a mirror over the bed? And she said, well, I like to see how I'm doing. <laughs> uh, so uh, that interview was never aired on television. <laughs> Uh, it's interesting. I I did a lot of research, uh, um, for this, uh, uh, on Mae West and looked at a lot of documentaries and I saw this one documentary and it had Robert Osborne in it. And I don't know if anyone out there might remember him. He used to do all of the uh, Turner classic movies. He would open and close, uh, the movies and talk about, he was a great Hollywood historian and he was talking about the appeal of Mae West, and I have to say, I think he got it wrong. Um, he was talking about how she got away with saying all of these things because people uh, didn't associate the way that she looked with being desirable. That Ooh. she didn't have the prettiest face, she didn't have the best body. Oh. And so she was able to get away with saying all of these things. And I, I, I'm not I I don't rightly agree with that. Mm -hmm. I would say that she had an energy, and the energy and the way that she was saying things, you could put that into any vessel, and the energy is what gets you excited. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, The sexuality is transmitted through the energy through the light within her it really didn't have a lot to do with necessarily the exact uh face and the exact body that she was in what is really interesting is that she completely changed beauty standards in america in the 1930s um prior to her um in the 20s and getting into the early 30s uh women's standard of beauty was um uh, almost androgynous. It was about people like Marlena Dietrich and Greta Garbo, who were, you know, uh, rail-like, and the flapper dresses were very loose. And um, but she brought back this hourglass figure. She brought back um, uh, how to accentuate uh, 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 the bosom and and the other the hips and everything, mm-hmm. uh, which was completely different from how things had been, but is how women would want to be going into the 40s and 50s, Mm -hmm. was to not be like the 20s and early 30s androgynous-like, but following in the direction of Mae West. Um, She would actually uh, go in and and have the costume designers make the seams uh, as tight as possible uh, to hug up against her uh, uh, top and and her hips. (laughs) And um, uh, she she would always place her fingers on the seam uh, so as to better accentuate everything. (laughs) Uh, She was extremely cognizant of how she looked. Um, She would be able to go onto set and know by the warmth of the light if the light was hitting her 
correctly. Mm -hmm. And so if the light wasn't, she could just tell from the warmth of it hitting her, you're going to need to move that light and you're going to need to turn this one on over here Mm -hmm. so that I'm lit the best. Mm -hmm. Um, So she, her time at Paramount Studios was only six years. Um, And this is really where we get most of these movies. Um, By the mid-1930s, she started getting into uh, real trouble with the censors. Uh, Censorship really came in force in the around 34, and then really just cracked down even harder from there. So the Hayes Code comes in, and this was a self-inflicted code. The Hollywood wanted to make sure that it would regulate itself so that the government wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And so they put in all sorts of things like, if you had two people on a bed, there had to be three legs on the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so only one leg could actually be on the bed. Um, and you can see this in, you know, the 50 sitcoms with uh, Dick Van Dyke and uh, Mary Tyler Moore would have to sleep in two twin beds. It, it had long-lasting ramifications. Well, the stuff that Mae West was putting out there was not going to get by the censors. <laughs> she actually would write the scripts with having the most lewd things in there, think, <laughs> hoping that they would go after those so that she could get in what she actually wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and that worked for a little bit, but by uh, 1938, um, they had gotten enough control to where they could just take out entire minutes out of films. And once the, they did that one too many times and one of her films completely flopped. Um, by uh, 38, she was actually listed in the box office poison list. Um, so Mae West was box office poison along with uh, Catherine Hepburn and Greta Garbo, Marlena Dietrich, mm-hmm. um, uh, all these people who w- we remember them a lot more than we remember whoever wrote that article. Mm-hmm. Um, she uh, was also she was only five foot. And wow. so she she would wear uh, nine inch heels. Oh my gosh! And that is why she walked like she did, uh, because she was walking on nine inch heels. Oh my goodness! Um, I, I uh, earlier uh, before the her time in Hollywood, um, her mother passed away in 1930, mm. and this was one of the biggest things in her life Mm -hmm. uh she had to be held by um her lawyer and her father when she saw uh, her dying or her dead mother and she just said that she howled for hours Mm -hmm. is at this time that she really starts to be um interested in the supernatural oh from the time of 1930 until the time of her passing she would hold weekly seances (gasps) Uh, to try and communicate with her mother. Uh, she was uh, intensely uh, interested in ESP, in telekinesis, in uh, spiritualism, in all of these aspects of the supernatural. Um, so after her uh, failure at, at Paramount, she left uh, the studios, which she had pretty much single-handedly brought um, back uh, from the brink. And uh, the first movie that she did was in 1940. It was with Universal. And it is My Little Chickadee, uh, <laughs> where her co-star is W.C. Fields. <laughs> uh, these are two that are, are fantastic together. Um, but she did not like working with W.C. Fields. Um, she was 
being a character. She was Mae West, but she was the consummate professional. W.C. Fields was W.C. Fields. Yes. He was a drunk in the mm-hmm. layabout. She had it in her contract to where um, if he showed up drunk, he would be uh, uh, taken away from the set mm-hmm. uh, and made to sober up before he would work with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did not enjoy working with him at all. But I'm so we're all very glad that she did because the two of them are fantastic together. Mm-hmm. Um, going into, uh, uh, World War II and afterwards, her career started to, uh, uh, go away for a little bit. Um, she was no longer the big star that she once was. She was also, uh, getting into, uh, her late fifties. Um, and at this time she decided to go back to Broadway mm. and she was a great big success back on Broadway. She, um, redid Diamond Lil, uh, her her big uh, uh, number, her big uh, uh, show uh, from the 1930s. And then she toured the country with it, and she went to London and toured London uh, with it. It was on Broadway again. It was uh, uh, all over the place. Uh, and then uh, she did other shows, which she completely wrote, produced, directed. Um, and she was getting into her 50s and 60s. Eventually, she completely uh, rethought of how to do a Vegas show. And so she went to Las Vegas. Hmm. And uh, she knew that... Um, um, she would be able to get the men in, but mm-hmm. she wanted to make sure that women would come too. Mm-hmm. So along with her, well, all the other guys had showgirls. So she decided that she would have show guys. Yes. And so she would have all of the Mr. America, all yes. of the bodybuilders come in and do lavish show numbers with her. Again, completely flipping sexuality uh, on its head yes. uh, that she was the one being surrounded by all of these men who were adoring her um she uh, uh her her last film she made in 1978 she was 85 years old yes it was sextet <laughs> uh, uh, another one which she had completely written uh, and produced, uh, where uh, the men who are uh, uh, going after her include Ringo Starr, uh, Alice Cooper, uh, <laughs> Timothy Dalton. Um, uh, and it was a, a tremendous failure. It did oh, not no. make any money. Um, but she got into the car after seeing the premiere and she looked out the window for a long time and she looked to uh, one of her uh, producing friends and said, that was yesterday. Um, and now we're going to talk about tomorrow. Yes. And then she, uh, and that was her as- outlook on life, her entire life. Um, and, uh, she, uh, lived, uh, until, uh, 1980, uh, when she passed away after suffering from a stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, she had spent, uh, 80 years in show business. Oh. Uh, no one had a career like her. And the fact that she was not even on, uh, a film until she was in her 40s is another uh, staggering uh, thing. She fundamentally transformed how we talked about sexuality, uh, what a liberated woman could look like, um, and uh, truly a, 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 a fascinating human being. Absolutely. Oh my goodness, this makes so much more sense now. I understand what's happening. I can explain more things to you. Um, I... First of all, I love Mae West. I, when I was a little girl, 
um, my mother used to ask me to do impersonations. And one of the impersonations I could do really well was Mae West, which was probably not one of the best impersonations I should have done when I was like seven. But I loved her. I, ah, I loved her so much. In fact, I helped your sister write a report on her for, uh, I brought it to her attention and she did all the research on Mae West. Now, I did not know the part about her being uh, into the occult, but I, I there's a couple of things I want to address. One, I think that average men like curvy women. I don't think average men like stick thin women. I think they really like some curves. Two, Mae West knew how to use every one of those curves and she decorated them unbelievably so. I mean, her costumes were amazing. Three, I think she was literally beautiful. I do not think that there was anything other than beauty uh, uh, about her. You look at Mae West. I don't, I think Mae West is beautiful. She also had that iconic platinum hair and the red lips and, you know, the, the, the makeup and, and the costumes and everything was so feminine, which is also that moon in Cancer and Venus in Cancer that we were talking about. She was extremely feminine. She was the epitome of a strong woman, right? And she knew where, <clears throat> pardon me, she knew where her, uh, her character's power resided <clears throat> sorry i'm chandler talk for a second yeah i mean like I, i'm not exactly sure what robert osborne was thinking when uh he was wearing this very 90s cardigan talking to us about this um but i would say that her energy um is more prevalent than anything physical that it is uh about uh, uh, the the charisma more than anything is what is attractive about her. Well, that is true, but I mean, at at that same time, if you see uh, pictures of her when she would, I mean, she, I think she's very beautiful. Yeah, but yeah. every you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I yes. on it because honestly, Mae West looks like women in our family. The women in the matriarchal side of our family resemble her. All right. We have platinum blondes in our family. We have curvaceous women in our family. There's something that I, well, I think that so many people, males, females, everyone admire in Mae West. Now, I do want to point out at one point I said, okay, this Gemini, this Pluto and Gem and Neptune and Gemini, she could be very funny. Mae West was hilarious. <laughs> yes. She was full on brilliantly hilarious and uh her okay so i also want to address this jupiter in aries now many times people associate aries with war and warriors and fighting but aries is probably the most sexual of all of the signs because where You'll see like Scorpio is seductive, right? And, um, you, you always think, oh, well, Scorpio is the, is the, is the sexual one. But Aries is, has no qualms 
about just going straight to the point, straight to the sexuality, straight to the um, animal magnetism, I guess. And she had Jupiter in Aries in the 12th house with her north node in Taurus, which is ruled by Venus in the 12th house. If anybody was made for this, it was her. This is exactly who she is. And it was her her karma to be this, almost like to blaze this trail. 10th house, Midhaven in Aquarius with Mars in Aquarius. She blazed the trail. She was the trendsetter. She was the person who broke the barriers and came through with this Mars, which is ruled by uh, Aries, right? I mean, uh, uh, yes, her planet Mars is in Aquarius. Sometimes I get lost in my thought. But, um, but then in Aquarius, unusual sexual behavior, right? Unusual, unique, not I mean, everything she, she didn't do anything that was weird or, 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 you know, like perverted. What she was doing was showing a woman who enjoyed sex and all women are supposed to be demure and, you know, uh, ladylike and all these things. But I think that her animal magnetism and her ability, I mean, the woman never stopped moving. She was constantly moving the entire time you ever saw her and like, like her motor was running, <laughs> but also now we're going to go to the fifth house, right? Fifth house is show business, correct? She has Virgo on the fifth house, business, work, right? Mercury and Saturn lessons, learning, business and work in the fifth house, show business. And then we come around to that Uranus in Scorpio in the sixth house, which gave her, you know, that un unfortunate need and drive to do everything she could to try to reach the other side. So there was that aspect to her, but also, um, I would be, uh, uh, interested to know about this Chiron conjunct sun in the fourth house, but also everything that you described about her home is very, very, um, fourth house in Leo, you know, I mean, over the top, just full on over the top. So I feel very confident about this. I honestly thought we were either discussing like, um, uh, I thought we were either discussing like Fanny Bryce or we were discussing, um, Ms. Winchester. I didn't know who we were dealing with here, but, uh, I'm really glad it was Mae West. Excellent choice Chandler. And considering that, you know, we are in Women's History Month. I think that people should really pay attention to women like Mae West. And I know this is coming out on April Fool's and I, I, I find this whole scenario very interesting. But um, Mae West should be at the top of the list of women's history because she was an extremely amazing businesswoman and creator and auteur and just, you know, everything. I love her. Uh, yes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, absolutely. She, she should, uh, uh, be up there with, uh, uh all of the 
great women that we talk about uh, during Women's History Month and outside of Women's History Month. She is a, a great woman, a great American, um, and uh, yeah, that, that's why uh, I figured she'd be a, a good choice to uh, do. Well, it's an excellent choice, Chandler. I'm very proud of you. This is very good. Uh, well, uh, on our scale of right on the money to way out in outer space, I would say this would be way out in outer space for Mamie Eisenhower, <laughs> but uh, right on the money for Mae West. <laughs> Uh, so uh, that concludes this episode of History in Retrograde. Uh, we'd like to thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, we are available on socials. We have all the links to those in the description of the podcast. Uh, we also have a link there to our PayPal account. Uh, if you're feeling extra generous, um, any uh, little amount uh, helps us in uh, producing a better quality show for you. And uh, as always, in conclusion, as long as your houses are in order and the stars are aligned, everything will be just fine. That's right. Everything is going to be just fine. And I want to say thank you so much to all of you who are listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. And I thank you so much for sharing the links for the show and contacting us and letting us know how you like it. It's really wonderful when we hear from you. And it's spring. Go outside. Get into nature. Kiss a butterfly. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Uh, make sure you know what kind of butterfly you're kissing. We don't want you to get any kind of sickness or illness or anything. But, uh, yes, frolic about. Uh, enjoy your spring. Uh, thank you so very much for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.